Our scripture lesson today consists of three verses from Psalm 48. Those are verses 12 through 14. Walk about Zion, go all around it. Count its towers, consider well its ramparts. Go through its citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever. God will be our guide forever. This is the word of the Lord. When I was in college, the new minister of our church was elected a commissioner to the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church, which met every summer. In those years, the church was engaged in questions involving the civil rights movement, the war in Vietnam, the potential for reunion between the northern and southern branches of the Presbyterian Church, a disunion that had occurred during the Civil War, as well as beginning consideration of questions concerning whether or not gay or lesbian members could be ordained. The denomination was larger then. The General Assembly played a more significant role. There was more interest among members in matters of the larger church than seems generally to be the case today. The minister came home and preached a sermon on the state of the church, specifically on the state of the national church as he had perceived it in his 10 days at the General Assembly. He entitled the sermon, Walking About Zion. From a line in a psalm in which God invites the people of Israel to walk about Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, to observe the citadels of its temple, to contemplate how it will tell the next generations that this is God, our God forever, and how it will convey that God will be our guide forever. I have some memory of what the minister said in the sermon, but it's the title that has stuck with me over the years. Walking About Zion. As today I want to give a pastoral assessment of our congregation of Westminster, I have drawn from that title and named this sermon Walking About Westminster. Let us pray. Lord, may this sermon be not merely report, but proclamation. Not merely news at the level of how things are, but good news of your work and redemption in the world. Not merely a report, but a call. And may we hear in it through your spirit the word you have for us as a congregation and as individuals today. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Whether you get your religious news from traditional established sources like newspapers or networks, or from social media, podcasts, blogs, or evangelical outlets, you likely know that over the past few decades, the percentage of Americans who identify as Christians has declined rapidly. Pew Research indicates that in the 1970s, the percentage of Americans, of the American population that were Christian, stood at around 90%. 
It now hovers at around 64%, and it continues to decline. Nearly every denomination, including the largest Protestant denomination, the Southern Baptist Church, has experienced decline. Several large megachurches, like the Crystal Cathedral, Mars Hill, and Willow Creek Church, have closed, sold, or been marred by sexual or financial scandals and sometimes simply by succession issues. More traditional established denominations like ours, Presbyterian, Methodist, Lutheran, American Baptist, Episcopal Disciples of Christ, have suffered the most losses. When I was ordained in 1980, there were over 4 million Presbyterians in our denomination. Now we hover at around 1 million. Most Presbyterian churches in this country are under 150 members and we are more and are more likely than larger churches not to have a full-time pastor better yet any other program staff. A recently retired minister I know who dedicated his entire ministry to serving small churches told me that of the 12 congregations he has served only three are still in existence. This says nothing about the personal faith of individual members or ministers within these congregations. But from a purely big picture institutional standpoint, there has been decline nearly across the board. And I personally believe that the worldwide Christian witness is weakened when either the number of congregations in our tradition or the number of people involved in them declines. A walk about Christianity in America today is not always a pleasant walk. But within this harsh reality, as you know, Westminster has continued to thrive. I cannot thank you enough for the way we have bounced back from COVID. We have continued to receive new members at basically the same rate that we were before. Our financial support has increased in aggregate 20% over the past two years. You have seen Sunday after Sunday the way our music program has grown and now involves all ages in the congregation. The Bible classes I teach increased enrollment from about 45 last year to over 70 this year. And attendance at our Sunday morning adult formation time has also been increasing. Over 34 youth attended youth mission trips last summer. And as you heard two weeks ago, 25 people from our congregation got up very early on a Saturday morning to glean apples for people who need food. The preschool has crawled back to near pre-COVID enrollment levels. And perhaps best of all, worship attendance has actually increased 38% over 2019 figures, which was the last year before COVID. And we are within about 50 people a Sunday of being back actually to our in-person levels. We have about 100 
100 plus each week that are joining us online. A total of about 650 people are joining Westminster in worship each week in some form, whether in person or online. And this is the highest number since the middle or early 1990s. Most of all, as we walk about Zion, as we walk about Westminster, there is simply a joy to this congregation that makes it alive. Newcomers say this feels like the church at home. And when people leave this area, they fear not being able to find a church that is, that is as vibrant and welcoming as Westminster. Serving this congregation has been and remains one of the two or three greatest blessings in my life. But we have a few challenges that present a number of opportunities, none of which is hopeless or total or intimidating. We have a dear, sweet organ <laughs> who is dutifully sat in the same spot, the same pew, like a good Presbyterian, <laughs> at every worship service, participating faithfully and cooperatively since 1965. But in recent years, our organ has begun to speak up at inopportune times, <laughs> to not stay with the flow of the tune as we are singing, or sometimes just to refuse to speak at all. In its less cooperative moods, our organ emits deep, guttural sounds that just aren't quite appropriate for the setting. A few times we've had to ask our organ to stop playing during a service because worship just isn't the same. But worship just isn't the same when our organ has to sit the service out. I know a lot of times as you've heard things the last several months, you think it's pilot error. <laughs> It wasn't until today. <laughs> we have had two separate organ doctors look at our organ, and they advised that seeking to repair or rebuild would cost relatively close to what it would cost to replace it. And would do so without much guarantee of longevity or quality of life. With the good history of stewardship and financial management we have at Westminster. And with the importance of music to our life and worship. The session and most others who've looked into this have concluded. That having a new pipe organ designed and built for this space is the way to go. And as such, the session our elected leaders has commissioned an organ committee to begin the process of selecting an organ builder. Having been told that there are about four or five in North America that would be appropriate to the job. Now, it has been 20 years since we've had at Westminster what's called a capital campaign. A time when we asked the congregation to provide significant financial support over usually a three-year period for what are usually major building or renovation projects. These can be times that are filled with hope and enthusiasm in the church, times in which we focus, like the psalmist, 
on how we tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. But capital campaigns can be stressful as well, like deciding to move or do a major renovation of a home. When as Presbyterians and members of Westminster, we face a big decision like this, we make sure that we examine all, aspect of our li- all aspects of our life together, like a family does. We make sure that we at least consider doing as many things to our building or ways of expanding our ministry as we might need to do for years to come. So in the past two months, we've invited you to attend focus groups to consider a range of ideas that session members and individuals surfaced or suggested as possibilities. Over 25% of the households in the congregation attended such a group, which is a good number. And we thank you for your participation. As you may have read in a congregational communication that went out this Friday, in addition to the organ, some of the ideas have met with almost immediate acceptance. Replacing the church bus so that we continue our outreach to seniors. Improving youth space at a less, potentially at a less expensive cost than has been shown. Expanding or finding additional, an additional site um, for our columbarium. Building up our reserves for needed repairs over the years to come at a level recommended by a special study. And giving 10% of our proceeds to mission, a mission tithe. These are all positive ideas that while on the one level they're operational, they express confidence in our identity and mission as a congregation even in the acknowledged face of an overall decline of Christianity in America. And we seek to express and live out the gospel as we know it best and as we know how in this region, near our nation's capital, and we seek to reach out even more than we are now to try to draw people who might resonate with the way that we interpret and proclaim and experience and worship God. In addition, much of what came out of our focus groups was a desire for more information, better cost estimates, drawings and visuals, as well as a more extensive planning on how we use all of the spaces in this vast building. In response to this, and again with good Presbyterian thoroughness, our next step is to have a master planning process for our facilities to analyze their current usage and to envision future uses and possibilities. In the spirit of the psalmist, we will literally literally go all around Westminster Count its towers. Consider well its ramparts. Go through its citadels. This will help further inform our upcoming capital campaign, which we will launch in March. 
Just as you have participated in our focus groups, you will also be invited to participate in meetings later this fall with more specific information to give more specific input and even see visuals, eventually see visuals about facilities possibilities. In the meantime, and it's more than just a meantime, we're also moving forward to conduct our annual stewardship campaign this fall, as several members in the focus group suggested we do. Vince Chrysler, our chair, will speak to this in a minute. It is vitally important that even as we focus on the future, we continue the vitality and support of our congregation in the present, giving a well-considered portion of our income and resources to the church each year, even leading up to a tithe of 10%, is simply a part of being a Christian. It's part of what it means to be a member of Westminster. It's something we seek to nurture in all of our members and encourage people to start in a way that fits and then grow and grow and grow because as you give of your resources, you give and grow spiritually. It is a part of the Christian faith that you in this congregation have done well. Last weekend, I attended the 50th reunion of my graduating class at the small private boys' school that I attended in Memphis, Tennessee, my last three years of high school. It was a wonderful weekend on many levels. And as is often the case with reunions, it marked the first time I had seen nearly everyone there since my 30th reunion, which I attended right before moving to Westminster. As people have gotten older, and perhaps because they remembered that I had become a minister, several opened up about what they have experienced in the past few decades. A woman from a neighboring girls' school with whom we shared the reunion related that she and her husband and seven of their nine children had just recently ma managed to leave to free themselves from a religious cult in Texas in which they had lived for 38 years. Several shared with me their recent deep religious experiences. Others shared splits or tensions that they are experiencing in their churches. A physician who was a good friend in high school shared that he had awakened one night, diagnosed himself as having a pulmonary embolism, gotten to the hospital, received treatment, and survived. This being Memphis, we also talked about the events in the aftermath of the killing of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., when we were all 13, the lingering, seemingly intractable issues of race in our home city, and even what some of them have been trying to do to improve things. And this being the South, we also talked a lot about SEC football. 
though I remained largely silent, for my alma mater has yet to win a conference game this year. But the conversation that I most wanted to have was with a classmate whose grown daughter was murdered a year ago in a story with racial overtones that made the national news. I had sent him a note at the time, but didn't know him well enough to have seen him face to face. Among the things he related to a group of us that were standing with him is that he has returned at times to the church of his childhood, a church that I respect greatly, and that sometimes he goes to sleep at night listening to podcasts of sermons or to music. Then of the whole experience, he said, you feel a lot of love. You feel a lot of love. I flew back to Reagan on Sunday morning last week, and Maggie picked me up at the airport around 9.45 a.m. We decided to do what thousands of other people in this area do on Sunday mornings. We stopped at the new St. Elmo's in North Old Town. We ordered lattes and pastry. We enjoyed the atmosphere. We watched the myriad of people who bike or walk by, and as we left, we even petted a dog. For an hour or so, we were truly Sunday morning civilians in Alexandria. And it was great. We didn't even feel like we were doing something wrong. We then drove to Westminster, entered through the lobby door, were greeted by Rob Manusco at the parking lot or at the lobby door, and then by Judy Mahanes and Kathy Boyce, who handed us a bulletin, which is something I haven't seen because the one we use is much bigger and thicker up here. We took our seats right over here where Maggie usually sits, just as the prelude began with our Covenant and Children's and Covenant and Genesis Children's Choirs. And I've got to tell you, sitting in that pew next to my spouse... I experienced a worship service from start to finish that was wonderful. Every part of it. The music, the sermon, the liturgy, the prayers, the youth and the children singing, Jacob's always enthusiastic announcements. Patrick and I said if we gave him a telephone directory to read in worship, he could make it sound exciting. That's what we said when you were gone. But the service was joyful. It was beautiful. It was funny. It was energetic. It was moving. And it was telling the next generation and the generation seated here that God will be our guide forever. And for a rare time, when Maggie and I get to worship together, it usually works if we're in a small rural church somewhere, but for a rare time, I came and sat in these pews, and I didn't feel like a drama critic who had to notice every detail and file a report the next week. 
as I was sitting there, I was reminded of what my classmate had said 12 hours earlier. There's a lot of love. There's a lot of love. 